1990. Alice tapped her feet nervously in the quiet underground station at Utram Park. It was late and no one else was there. Ordinarily, she would have taken a taxi cab home from work, since it wasn't a company dime, as was her taxi to work every morning. Being secretary to Mr. Richard came with certain perks. Most of the office girls thought it was so glamorous, the way she'd strolled past them into her black and yellow taxi every evening at six o'clock. But times, Mr. Richard had said this morning with an apologetic British shrug, are getting leaner. And so it was announced after lunch today that the transport budget would be cut for everyone except key management, effective immediately. Very sorry, Alice, but there's the train now, isn't there? And don't you live in, what was it? Passeris, sir. That's on the line, isn't it? I think so. Very good. She'd taken this in her stride as a company woman, and borne out the tray of spent tea and biscuits with her head high. Later, she stayed behind at work, citing some complicated paperwork from KL. When the girls punched out and streamed curiously past her desk, she typed with extra purpose to indicate that no one should ask any questions. She didn't want to get into a conversation about how she'd never actually been on the MRT, or that she didn't know the last thing about how it worked. By the time she found the courage to leave the office, figuring that any stragglers would have gone, it was dark. And by the time she found the station and finished fumbling with the ticket machine, an attendant in uniform was shouting at her, Faster, miss! Last train to Paseris! The train pulled up into the station, and the doors opened with a mechanical sigh. It was empty and pleasantly cool. Amidst the quiet hum of its gears, she felt the initial unpleasantness of the evening start to ebb away. She had taken a train like this once, in London. They had called it the Tube, she remembered, and it burrowed deep underneath the earth like a great big worm. This was two years ago, when she had followed Mr. Richard on his trip back to the company's crouch-end office. "'You're my best girl, Alice!' he'd said when she'd hesitated about making the trip. The London girls don't care enough and type up too many mistakes. Even though she was forty and hardly a girl, she held this professional compliment warmly to her heart throughout the trip, which had taken place during a dark and horrible winter full of sleet and wet-gloved beggars pawing at her feet. It had been her first experience of such a lip-chapping cold— and she'd had to layer on every single one of the two thin sweaters she'd gotten at wintertime at Centre Point. Her mother, who had tagged along to the shop, insisted on paying for everything, saying, Alice, you're the first of the family to leave Singapore, you know. Unlike the tube, which smelled of cigarettes and urine, and which shook and rumbled like it might break apart, this train felt very futuristic and solid inspired confidence. As it moved off, it cut like a hot knife through butter on the tracks. It smelled bright and fresh, like the precision-engineered British vacuum cleaners they sold at the company. She noted all this with some pride, burrowing deeper into the plastic orange seats. She caught her reflection in the darkened window and smiled at herself with mild admonishment. Why, she wondered, had she been so sniffy 
hitherto, about the whole business with the MRT. She wasn't sniffy about it, in truth, just circumspect about anything that involved lots of people getting very worked up about something all at once. Unlike most of the office girls, the evening news, and it seemed the whole bloody island, Alice had refused to get worked up about the new transport system. There was something very common about all the fuss. For weeks after the launch, the news had been full of people swarming to take a ride, even inexplicably three Samsui women going on a gallivant. Amidst this circus, Alice found easy confirmation of her sentiments, and in this vein, she'd managed to avoid the train system for nearly three years. I'm old-fashioned, she'd said last week to young Aini, who every morning arrived hot and sweaty after her train commune from Badok. Aini was asking if Alice had ever taken the MRT, and now looked expectantly at Alice to finish her thought. This had annoyed Alice, because surely there was nothing more to be said. Now, as the train hummed pleasantly towards the east, she thought, if the sharply dressed men and women of London could take the public metro, then so, most certainly, could she. She had to admit that forty air-conditioned minutes between Outram Park and Passeris felt modern and miraculous. In the five years since she and her mother had been relocated from Ballastir to Passeris, it had never stopped feeling like some form of exile. Passeris was, after all, so far away from everything. Wah, so far, was the only thing anyone seemed to have to say about her new address. Passeris? Isn't that just pig farms and swamps? She'd asked the impatient HDB officer who was walking them through the relocation. He replied, frostily, that Passeris was a lovely beachside town that was very up and coming. On moving day, a lorry had driven Alice, her mother, and their worldly possessions, two heirloom tea cabinets from Hong Kong and various bags of clothing, past several long stretches of barren field and dark jungle. When they arrived at Pasiris new town, the neighborhood was white and empty, and there seemed to be more buildings than people. Her mother could not stop crying. Her mother had not taken the move well. The Ballastier shop house, even though it was dark and mildewy, had been central to her mother's personal mythology. Alice's parents had first moved in as young people, living upstairs with five other families. Her mother, who came from a Hong Kong tailoring family, eked out a living as a seamstress in the back room of the watch repair shop downstairs. A shrewd businesswoman, she negotiated a deal with the Indian shopkeeper, trading space for tailored cotton shirts. She very quickly became well-known in the area for her cheap but good Cantonese tailoring. After Alice's father died young of dysentery, her mother threw herself into her work and eventually made enough to buy over the shop, then the entire building. The landlord, a debt-ridden gambler, 
had let it go for a steal. You were born there, and your papa died there, long before this stupid government even existed, her mother liked to remind her in the weeks leading up to the move. It was this last sentiment that Alice could not abide. Which government in the world would give people like us a house, mother? A house and $500,000. I don't need the money. And they wouldn't have to give me a house if they didn't tear the old one down. Alice sighed. Not a year before the move, a very pushy official had explained that the shop house needed to come down to make way for an expressway. Even Alice, who did not make a habit of questioning the government, had found this upsetting. But, as a woman of her generation, which had seen such rapid betterment in so little time, she saw it as her duty to go along with these things, to trust in how her life, a small one, might be part of a national one, with a grand design, whose secrets she was not meant to know. And in this fashion, she had tried to love Paseris. On weekends, she strolled around the sunny ghost town, admiring its fresh coat of paint and towering skyscraper flats, its tidy topiary and primary color palette. But something did not click into place. Where Ballastia and its community of cats and doddering neighbors had felt like the companionable silence between old married people, this new town, barren and eerie, felt like the set of a play or a ventriloquist's puppet still in its box. She would not admit to her mother that she deeply missed the Ballastia shop house whose scale was sensible and human. She did not want to add fuel to her mother's rabid but futile anti-government bluster. The truth, however, was that whenever she took the lift up to their new 12th floor flat, she found herself recalling how embedded in the life of the street the old house had been. She thought of her old wooden windows and the view outside of the dusty rattan furniture shop across the street below and the lock and key man shaving metal in a flurry of sparks. Ballastia had felt part of something old and dignified, something workmanlike and hard-earned. The view from her new room was of a barren field. And maybe this was why, when everyone had been so thrilled that Singapore, with its new MRT, was finally entering the ranks of the modern world, Alice had reserved her excitement. An expressway now ran through her childhood home, and her feelings about this were largely unresolved. The train pulled unexpectedly out of the tunnel and jolted Alice out of her thoughts. With a slight gasp, Alice saw that they were now high overground, gliding above the Kalang River. In the dark of the night, distant city lights receded, and the river reflected their glow like a flotilla of lanterns on the water. So pretty, she whispered to herself.
She felt her heart thrill slightly at the thought of living in such a city, which at this moment looked like London in the winter. The scene, in fact, was a dead ringer for that moment when the black London taxi had first pulled into the city, and she'd marvelled at its austere brown buildings, their yellow lights twinkling through smog. An overground train had chugged above the taxi, and inside she saw savvy metropolitans in transit, each inhabiting a life utterly unique of busyness and importance. And here she was now, she realized, herself, a metropolitan in transit. She felt a warmth in her heart and a fizziness in her blood. This feeling, surely, was the promise of the future that the government kept talking about. And wasn't she a benefactor of this promise? Armed only with an O-level certificate, she'd nonetheless become head secretary of Armitage Electronics Asia office someone indispensable to a big British company. And surely, she thought, there are prices to pay in the business of becoming modern, a toll to cross into the light. What's a childhood home for an expressway? With a start, Alice suddenly realized she was not alone. Seated across from her was a woman who hadn't been there before and Alice couldn't remember when she'd gotten on. She must have fallen asleep, she thought, checking her watch, and seeing that it was almost past her normal bedtime. She glanced at the woman, whose eyes were closed. She was a Malay lady, about twenty-five, and dressed in a fashion Alice had not seen in a long time. Her hair was styled in a gentle updo, and she wore a fitted green kabaya with a print of little beige sparrows. Her eyelids were dark and smoky, offset by bright red lips. She had the late-night air of having come from a function, maybe a wedding. She was beautiful, in fact, and Alice found herself warming to her. Thinking how young women nowadays, some of whom wore jeans and t-shirts like men, had lost something essential and feminine. In fact, something about this woman made Alice unexpectedly sad. She reminded Alice of the Ballastier shop house and her mother's long-faded reputation as a maker of sarong kabayas. Her mother's clothes-making business had really only taken off after she started tailoring kabayas. This was when Alice was twelve. A rich Nonya lady had come in one day and haughtily asked if her mother could make kabayas and fairly quickly. Her mother, who barely knew what a kabaya was, had enthusiastically taken her measurements and said to come back in a week. She spent sleepless nights adapting the Cheongsam pattern she'd brought with her from Hong Kong. And when the Nonya lady returned for a fitting, she said the garment was very good indeed. Soon, she became one of the very few seamstresses in the city who made cheap but quality kabayas and attracted a set of well-heeled Malay ladies. Strolling leisurely amidst bolts of fabric, the woman, who always wore beautifully painted faces, 
laughed and filled the shop with a thick thug of their perfume and cosmopolitan chatter. They hummed songs from the pictures and discussed boys and trips to England and swapped knowing notes about the formidable strength but rounded flavor of Ballantine whiskey. One afternoon, when she was twelve, Alice was helping her mother unpick some seams when a black Ford Mustang pulled up outside the shop. The driver came out from the front to open the passenger door. A Malay woman in a blue kabaya and a majestic beehive stepped out of the car and into the shop. Something about her, which was reserved but not unkind, worldly but not bragging like the other ladies, indicated to Alice that this was a woman of some importance. Something about her face shimmered tantalizingly in Alice's memory, though she could not quite place it. Her voice, an alto clarinet rumble, wrapped itself warmly around Alice's ears, like a voice from the radio. Hello. I hear you make very nice kabayas. Alice had not known whether to bow. Such was the gravity of this woman's self-possession. She settled instead for a reverential dip of the head and went to fetch her mother. The air in the shop was now saturated with the woman's perfume, rose and jasmine, and for the rest of the afternoon Alice sat in a corner and watched as her mother fussed about this holy, beautiful woman with pins and muslin. Measurements were taken, and the woman said, Make sure it's nice and tight, winking at Alice, who blushed at being addressed by such a force of glamour. She felt suddenly very small and dirty in her tattered day clothes. When the woman came back for her fitting a week later, Alice was ready in the red linen dress she'd worn for Chinese New Year. The woman tried on the garment, which flattered the curves of her body so perfectly that nothing had to be changed. She turned back from the mirror and said to Mother, You Cantonese really are the best. Her mother had simply smiled and nodded, but Alice basked, wide-eyed and toothy in the second-hand pride. As the woman left that afternoon, the shop and even the flat upstairs felt sanctified and aglow with the compliment. The woman would never return to the shop, leaving orders instead. Alice put herself in charge of folding and wrapping the kabayas in gauze. She would personally put the parcels into the hands of the woman's assistant, a specky girl called Azura, who would come to the shop in a new kabaya each time. It was through Azura that Alice learned the woman's name, Miss Saloma. It wasn't until years later, when she was allowed to go to the twenty-cent pictures, that the true scale of the woman's benediction became clear to her. As Alice's only point of contact with the mysterious woman, Alice came to idolize Azura who said very little, but was polite and regal in her own way. She bore a kind of self-assured dignity that Alice figured must come from being in close proximity to someone like Miss Saloma. It was here 
that Alice learned how you could be edified by being attendant to grace and gentility. One day, Alice summed up the courage to break with professional anonymity and asked Azura, Miss, how do I get a job like yours? Azura took off her glasses, cleaned them with a silk handkerchief, and smiled. Putting her glasses back on, she said, Study hard, girl. Just make sure you study hard. Alice thought proudly that she had done just that. And here she formed an argument that she would communicate to her mother when she got home about the pathways this government had beaten for women, unrivaled anywhere else in the region. After all, here she was today, at Armitage Electronics, attendant to its chief officer for Asia. Someone who was, maybe not great, but certainly genteel and important, whose light, a love of Schubert's, strong black tea, and woody cologne, cast a flattering glow on her life. Alice found herself tracing the red thread of her life from where she was now, a modern woman sitting this marvellous modern train, to the shop, breathing in the warm perfume of those women and their persuasive grace. A sour ache suddenly hit her chest at the thought of the Ballastier shophouse, which she had last seen a few years ago, days before it was demolished, fenced up, white with dust, like a corpse at a wake. She turned back to look at the woman and found it uncanny how she seemed to walk right out of her memory. It was then that she realized the woman's eyes were now open and that she was looking straight at Alice. Alice saw that she was, in fact, crying. Miss. Are you okay? The woman did not answer. Would you like... Alice fished out a packet of tissues from her handbag and stretched it out to the woman, who did not take them. Her face was shiny with thick tears now, but her makeup was not ruined. Alice felt the hairs on her neck bristling. She felt a horrible chill pass through the carriage and the air was suddenly heavy with a scent of crushed leaves and earth. She slowly retracted her hand. Alice had grown up hearing tales of such encounters, and had never believed them. So now, in the presence of this strange woman, and the sudden frigid stillness in the air, what else could it be? The hour was late enough, and the train was totally empty. Chugging underground through countless old neighborhoods, Alice thought with a clammy horror, they must surely have rumbled through a cemetery or two. But, as Alice looked deep into the woman's eyes, she saw that while there was an unnerving fixity to her gaze, there was no malice in it. Her eyes were sad and beseeching, even a little fearful. She might be reasoned with. Alice's mind closed around the words she'd been taught by her mother to say. I mean you no harm. Please leave me alone. Her voice was hoarse but firm, 
the same steely voice of authority she wielded at the office, and that she'd seen work on other women, even some men. At this, the woman's lips parted gently, and there was a quiet intake of breath. Her face seemed to soften, and she started to smile. The woman started to speak in a strange, airy voice that seemed to be many at once, a rasping harmony, variously bird call and wind. I mean you no harm. Please leave me alone. Alice's eyes widened. Are you a ghost? The woman smiled and shook her head, as if not understanding the question. A sudden motion caught Alice's attention. One of the beige sparrows on the woman's kabaya had started to flutter its wings against the green of the fabric, which seemed itself to stir and sway. The sparrow seemed to hop off a branch and fly deeper into the green of the kabaya, then disappear. More birds seemed to come alive. Birds that were not sparrows, but large, long-billed herons, and even she saw bright yellow sunbirds. As Alice dwelled longer on this illusion, she realized that the kabaya seemed not to be made of fabric at all, and that she was looking as if through a woman-shaped window cut into the air at a forest. She tried to tear her eyes away from this, but found that she could not, because everywhere was suddenly forest. The bottom of her skirt grew damp. She was sitting on a fallen tree. The bottom of her shoes pushed gently into soft, leafy undergrowth. Where the woman had been was only a shape that shimmered darkly in the air. Alice realized she was not afraid. That, though the scene before her was inexplicable and impossible, there was nothing monstrous or demonic at work. In being shown this, there was, she realized, the patient quality of a child or a very old person taking her hand and leading her towards an understanding of something infinitely gentle and important. In the stillness of the forest, she heard, in the whistling of insects, in the evening call of birds, and in the gentle sigh of the wind, a low lamentation. A feeling crept into her, of the emptiness of hallways, of doors being closed for the last time, of familiar growths of mold on ceilings, and the smell of mildew and damp. A spirit had reached into her heart, searching for a common language. There, as if rustling around a drawer of miscellaneous objects, it had found and closed around the precise ache of the house at Ballastier. It lingered over the past that had been lovingly trapped there, like incense smoke under a bell jar. Women in kabayas, the viscous syrup of their voices, her mother's confident, celebrated hands before they started to shake and wither in old age. The spirit squeezed a little harder, and Alice felt a dull thud 
where all of those things now lay buried under concrete. Me too, the spirit said as it gently pulled out of Alice's heart, leaving behind a single shard of heartbreak. And in this moment, the vision started to collapse, like shoulders buckling under the strain of something very heavy. And it was, Alice realized, not a child, but someone very, very old that had taken her hand in that brief moment. Tampanese! The train doors opened, and a man in a construction jumpsuit slouched in, sitting where the woman in the kabaya had been. He looked funnily at Alice, then turned away in embarrassment. She touched her face and found she'd been crying. The train pulled away towards Pasiris. Alice collected herself and felt the memory of what had happened rapidly fading away. Why was she crying? Her breathing quickened as she scrabbled in her head to gather the receding images. But one by one, they hopped away like birds and flew off before she could lay hands on them. As the train crossed the small green land separating Tampanese and Pasiris, flashes of understanding blotted and faded in Alice's mind. Thoughts of birds in search of trees that no longer lived. Thoughts of old, very old people exiled to the extremities of an island. This last thought did not dissolve in Alice's heart, but sat heavy and tangible, like a stone sinking through water. Where it landed, her heart felt sore and bruised and she knew the only way to relieve it was to share it somehow. Her thoughts collected now around her mother, and how that morning at breakfast the old woman had sat in the fluorescent-lit kitchen over her cup of milk tea and watery eggs, staring bleakly across the table at Alice, who was applying the last of her lipstick Remember last time only actresses and prostitutes used to wear makeup? She'd said. And Alice ignored her. Remember last time they came to the shop? I will never forget how strong their perfume was. Alice had turned away from her compact to glance at her mother, whose moroseness deeply irritated her. She wanted so desperately to be away from it. Their eyes met briefly and then her mother looked away in embarrassment. Now, in the train, Alice held her mother's face in her mind. Something about her gaze, beseeching and fearful, and something about the tone of her voice, low and lamenting, hummed together with a shard of grief that had become lodged inside her heart. I really miss that old house, la, her mother had said, taking a shaking sip of tea. At breakfast, Alice had snapped her compact sharp, smiled tightly at her mother, and reminded her shortly to take her medicine for gout. Now, as the train pulled into Passeris, and Alice saw the new blocks covered in netting, growing out of a green field overrun with lalang, Alice found herself sighing and saying, 
Me too, lah, ma. Me too.